This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Is that, have you ever sat on a cement bench? So oh. You, Sean. So yes, yeah. you have. And so you get bleacher butt, right? Like, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It's like, and I'm done sitting on this bench. 15, 20 minutes? Like <laughs> five, maybe? <laughs> 30 seconds, maybe? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm just okay. about done with that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and then at the same time, have you sat on a cob bench? I have not, but I've sat on something kind of cobby-ish and that. Okay. All right. So yeah, much different. A cob bench is pretty much rock solid, just like a cement bench is. Yeah. Um, a cob floor is pretty much rock solid, just like a cement floor is. And um, I could probably go two or three times longer sitting on a cob bench or standing on a cob floor than I can on cement. Yeah, I agree. Before bleach butt sets in. And, and I've, I've kind of, you know, noodled on this a lot as I'm, you know, experiencing the, the buffet. And I have, I have a, a, a vast experience. And so, um, in fact, the people that have access to the chat, if you have both, if you've, uh, sat on both, uh, pick a number that's like how, like how much longer you can go on cob before bleacher butt sets in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, by the I, way, I'm going to go with three. I, I say it takes three times longer until bleacher butt sets in on cop. I might go with two, but still. Okay. Mud says he's going to send, uh, Ianto a postcard for us. So, uh, <laughs> cool, cool. Um, uh, all right. Let's see. The joy and heartbreak of earthships. Okay. This is one where, I mean, I'm so glad we've written this book. We can get it out there and, and share it. And here's my full package philosophy. Is that fair to say? Here's, here's where I'm at on all of the things that, you know, and, and, um, I mean, we, we give a kick in the nuts to light bulbs. We give a, a kick in the nuts to, uh, the native plant enthusiasm stuff. Uh, we give a kick in the nuts to a bunch of different things. And so here's where, I mean, there's so many people that love Earthship so much, and uh, they are about to have their ticket to hate me here. <clears throat> and I, I'm sorry I do this, but i got to do this. It's like I, I, in order to get to the thing that makes a big difference, I have to get past all these blocks, which are like, this is the only way. This is the best. you got to give up all your other things. And so it's like, all right, so here we go. Earthships. When I was a pup, my Earthship book was in tatters from too much love. When Christmas rolled around, everybody's gift from me was a brand new Earthship book. By the time I got land where I could build my first Earthship, my values had become richer. And I had learned a lot more about Earthships that had dimmed my enthusiasm. For those that don't know, an earthship is a south-facing building with the walls built out of old tires. There's a lot more to it. They are beautiful. And did I mention the old tires? <laughs> when you hold the book in your hand, your brain is locked on how simple and brilliant this technique is. And using stuff from the waste stream instead of filling dumps with toxic gick sounds great. It probably took me about 10 years of stars until somebody pointed out, so you want to live with the toxic gick in your house. This is where the heartbreak started. Ouch. I wish to thank 
Michael Reynolds for bringing the Earthship into reality and giving us all this magnificent dream and world-changing stepping stone. I have elected to try to keep all of the best parts of the Earthship design in the Wafati design while mitigating the downsides. Since the new design is so far removed from being an Earthship, and since there are so many downsides of an Earthship, the new design needed a whole new name. I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that I hope Michael Reynolds will forgive me for moving on to the Wafati design. Jack Spirico has a great thing to say about Earthships. And he's like, yeah, if you're thinking like you want to build an Earthship, get one tire and get your dirt and get a sledgehammer. And and then as part of the process, you got to pack the, the dirt into the tire a particular way. And so Jack says, before you're even halfway done processing that one tire, you will change your mind about our ships. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. That is that is some serious hard work. Now, yeah, for I know, Earth- I know it's, I know some people who built an Earth ship, and I was talking to them, and they were like, "Oh, I know that a relative of someone who built an Earth ship." So they kind of got called in to help out for the day or whatever, and they were like, "Yep, that was a lot of work." <laughs> So now they've got like a a machine that'll do the packing for you. Now, um, I've I've not seen the pictures. I've heard about it. Because like whenever you bring this up, this this thing about packing the tires, then then the people that love the Earthship say, well, now there's this machine that'll do it. But it's like um, I'm I I believe that at this. I mean, I have been to so many farms and gardens all over the Pacific Northwest. I gotta say. I, out of so many places that I visited, I have never been to a site of a completed Earthship. But I Mm. have been to, I think, four sites where an Earthship had been under construction, and it had been under construction for at least three years, and it still wasn't complete. Um, Wow. And so there's a lot of these sites where it just goes on and on and on for building. It takes a long time to pack those tires. Yeah. So, um, and then at every Earthship place that I've been to where they're building Earthships, I'm outside and the whole site just reeks of tires. Mm-hmm. So that's the tires off-gassing. And they're off-gassing so much that it stinks on a windy day outside. Um, and so I, I kind of feel like, um, hello, spider. I kind of feel like, um, imagine what it's going to be like when you seal it up. And then there's, there's a lot of stuff out there with information about the downsides of Earthships. Um, the one last thing is, is that, I remember reading in the book that I had about um, a guy, can't remember his name now. Uh, De- is it Dennis Hopper? No, it's, his name is Dennis something. And it was a, it was an actor. He was a famous actor, an, a- an actor I'd heard of. And um, he had the world's largest um, Earthship at the time. And apparently they made a movie, and I haven't seen the movie. But I did read about it in the book, and I read about it, and I was so excited about all this. And it's like um, uh, this guy, this actor guy, loved, 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 loved his Earthship. But apparently uh, he abandoned it, like, immediately after the movie was made. Like, he was there for the movie, <laughs> talking about how great it was. And then he, like, walked out, like, the next day because being in his Earthship, apparently he had constant headaches. Ooh. Yeah. And so, uh, um, I, I love you. My favorite part of the Earthship book that just so I just is like, uh, uh, what if I build an Earthship and it turns out that there's a spring in the middle of my Earthship, like water bubbling out of the ground. And so, uh, Michael Reynolds says, uh, that's a feature. And so you embrace it. And I kind of thought, how cool is that? You got a water feature right in your house. This little 
this little bit of kind of like a creek. It's like it's so cool. Oh, Uncle Mud's pointing out it's Dennis Weaver. Um, was was the uh, the guy? Um, all right. I, there are lots of Earthships that are complete. I've seen pictures. Uh, I just haven't personally visited one. Uh, I'd like to. I don't know. I I I was so in love with the Earthship for so many years. I feel like a traitor uh, <laughs> by by suggesting that they're less than perfect, and and so um, I feel like a bit of a traitor to straw bale. I love straw bale. After after Earth ships, I started loving on straw bale, and then after being at Cobville, I love Cobville. Although I loved Cobb, but at the same time, uh, it was very clear that Cobb is not a great fit for uh, Montana. Um, but all right, moving along. Uh, prevent wildfires by building a home. As mentioned in Chapter 25, if you don't thin your forest properly, you could lose all of your trees and possibly your vehicle, home, life, etc. to wildfires. Most of the time when the forest needs thinning, the price that the mill will pay for wood is less than what you might pay to get the wood to the mill. As a result, a lot of folks that need to thin their trees end up burning this wood for no productive purpose and release the carbon into the atmosphere. Such a waste. I want to sequester that carbon and use it to build a house. We're now talking about good forestry management. But I'd like to go three steps further to what I call good woodland management. Rather than using forestry practices that are for one person managing a thousand acres of forest, I prefer techniques for one person developing a symbiotic relationship with 20 acres of woodland. That person lives on the 20 acres, is bonkers about permaculture, and is transforming the land from a conifer forest to what more closely resembles a huge garden loaded with diversity of trees. Maybe 10% of the land will be conifer islands, but the rest of the land will be broadleaf trees. This means that 90% or more of the conifers on the land need to go. And into a home that into a home on that very land is the best possible use. To be clear, I am not advocating building a log cabin. It's very hard to stay warm in a log cabin in the winter. The insulation value is low, and there's very little thermal mass. Plus, log cabins require a lot of very specifically sized, fairly large trees. Not a great fit for forest thinnings. The Wafati design uses just a few logs for the frame and then thinnings for the rest, so my design prevents forest fires and I get free building materials at the same time. Um, have you ever been in a log structure like a log cabin or uh, maybe a restaurant or some other place and you're looking at the logs and you can see the grain in the logs. Yes. Yeah. So what they do with that is they've got a giant machine that you you feed in a log and it shaves the log down to a very uniform size that makes it easier to build log cabins. And and so um but a, but a, the wood that we use in the Wafatis you don't see any grain. Because we've just all we did was we just peeled the log, we just peeled right. the bark off the log, and now we've got the raw log, so you see no grain. So when you're in a log structure, look for the grain, and then that'll be the the, the stuff where they've. It's like they they took this wood, possibly even out of their own forest, but they had to run it through this machine that just ate away a bunch of the material, thus weakening the log. Now the log yeah. is not as strong as it once was, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, and it's it's just there, there's going to be this energy input into shaping the log that way. This pretty expensive energy input. Yeah. So 
keep an eye out for that, just to observe what's going on. I've seen a, a lot of that kind of thing. I've also seen places where um, they they have a conventional wall, but then they they've got like these round cuts off of logs that they then shape perfectly into the exact same shapes. They're all uniformly shaped, and then they just glue them onto the walls. And, and so now it looks like a log cabin right. on the inside, sort of. But uh, it's it's not. It's but but hey, at least that way you've got better insulation because your conventional walls will be, you know, loaded with plastic and insulation. Yeah. All right. Um, any any fun comments we should address at this time? Sergey's hanging out in chat. Really, Sergey's here. Awesome. Hi, Sergey. Oh, Botanical Films. There he is. He says hi, Paul. Spiffy. Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to move on to the next section, From Junk to Genius, with one simple design change. 80% of my do- design stands on the rather brilliant shoulders of the late Mike Ayler. In the fall of 1970, Mike lived in a crappy shack and struggled to stay warm. He decided that the following spring he would build a better place to live. He spent the winter drawing all sorts of designs to calculate heat efficiency. He also wanted to keep his materials costs low. He came up with a design that was unlike anything he had ever seen anywhere else. Mike's design eliminates many of the complexities of conventional construction. Further, if you live on wooded land, most of the required materials consist of what you cut from your land when doing sustainable forestry thinning. No importing straw bales or dump truckloads of sand. In fact, everything you import could fit into one pickup load. Some doors, some glass, some plumbing and electrical stuff, all of which you would bring in for any type of house. Now, I can see... Mud is probably typing furiously right now <laughs> to say, you know, we made that door. We did not import that door. We made it ourselves. So there's a rather massive. But we intentionally made it way too big and way too thick way too tall, way too wide, way too heavy. And um, it's positioned in such a way that it opens and closes so easily. And it's and it's held closed with magnets. I We don't currently have a latch on the door. And we've had some conversations about, do we need a latch on the door? <laughs> <laughs> because it's so heavy. I mean, it takes a lot to get it to open. Yeah. And so the door isn't just going to pop open on its, on its own. It doesn't move that easily on its own. Okay, all right. Let's see. Um, Mike's, let's see, I'm not sure where I, where I was. I should mark these as I go along. Mike's design. Further, if you live on wooded land, mostly require materials consist of what you cut from your land when doing sustainable forestry thinning. Okay, I already read that part. All right. Yeah. In a nutshell, Mike's design is a pole structure with a green roof. This usually means a structure surrounded by a waterproof membrane and then covered with dirt. A green roof is usually more expensive than a conventional roof, but Mike found that if you can follow one simple design principle, you can dramatically cut the costs of the whole structure. The one simple design principle is this. Every drop of rain must have a complete downhill soil path and must never encounter the edge of a roof. In order to illustrate this principle, we're going to try and show the water flow for various designs. The shading will be darker where there's more water, uh, more water in the soil. With a conventional home, if you put a little wraparound ditch on the uphill side, water is managed like so. All right. 
So, of course, the pod people won't be able to see the image. I don't know if, Sean, you're able to, to share this image with people. Um, I think you tried to get your image showing stuff set up before we started today's. Yeah, it didn't seem particularly promising. So, all right. So what we've got here is your regular salt box shaped house and there's a ditch on the uphill side uh, so when the water comes down it's carried around but of course one of the things is is that the house is uh higher up than the ground i i mean i don't know how many times i see houses w- where it's like the house sits lower like the floor inside the house is lower than the surrounding ground and it's kind of like what are you thinking is going to happen there you know, aren't you going to get a like a you know flooded basement or even a flooded house? You're going to get water in your house. <clears throat> All right, so it's important that out that outside the house, that any water that happens to be there is is going to be wanting to go away from the house. Uh, in his book, Mike Ayler describes a first thought house, the design people generally think of when they think of a house with a green roof. I call it a don't do this house. Now, of course, I'm going to point out that the name of Mike's book is called the $50 and up underground house book. And so usually what they do is it's a shed roof style thing. And uh, the open part is facing downhill. So you can get this view, this magnificent view. And then the water that lands on the roof goes to the back of the house, which is the uphill side. And then it accumulates behind the house, which is why most, like 90% of underground houses are abandoned, is because they have all these water drainage problems. They've got water inside the house. So um, there's a picture of this thing he calls the first thought house where it's facing downhill and the water piles up behind it. And I call it the don't do this house. Uh, people tend to think that of the second design more than the first, where basically the the soil is filled in. Uh, But where does all of the extra dirt come from? Are you also digging a big hole somewhere nearby? Let's drop that design and focus on the first one. This might be a good time to include a reminder that the Wafadi design is intended for sloped land. Otherwise, there's a lot of dirt that needs moving. with rain, and we're showing the water hitting the roof, running to the back, the water coming down the hill, and also hitting the back. And so you've got all this water concentrating behind the house. And you're going to, and then of course it's got, Tracy's drawn in a little flood inside the house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is where the people with this terrible design start doing their pseudo engineering. The first thought is, to put a French drain on the uphill side. But a French drain is designed to deal with the water table getting too high, not with too much water coming from above. So while that might help a little, it really doesn't work. A wraparound ditch around the back might help a little, but most of the water is already below the soil level and yet still above the floor level, Inside the house. The bottom line is that people that use this design end up with something that smells like a musty basement and is so riddled with water problems that thousands of these homes are abandoned. I could go on about this, but Mike's book does a much better job of bashing this design. Let's fix the primary problem with the don't do this house design. This is, this is where Mike is just Absolutely brilliant. And so here's the image where it's got the, the don't do this design. And uh, it's facing, the windows are facing downhill. And we just flip the whole thing around. So the windows are facing uphill. Now, all of the water that lands on the roof now runs down the hill. When it gets to the back of the roof, off the back of the slope, it just continues right on down the hill. Now, there's a sucky aspect to this design, and that is that everything you're looking at uphill is like a hill. It's a bunch of, you know, hill just right there. It's, and, you know, it's like, but, you know, I wanted this awesome view. Well, 
we have a solution for that. That's coming soon. That was easy. I simply pointed it uphill instead of downhill. Now the wraparound ditch gives us all of the perks that we get in a conventional home, and everything that lands on the roof goes downhill to where it isn't bothering me. The important thing to note is that I have now fixed all of the water problems. Uh, sound effect for a cheering crowd goes here. And when I say that I did it, I really mean Mike Aver did it. Sound effect for a cheering crowd goes here also. See, <laughs> great design, no water in my house. But all I've got to look at is the back of a hill instead of my beautiful downhill view. Well, foddies suck. Well, now I'm going to poke a big hole in the downhill side so that I can get all of that amazing view. Here is an attempt at conveying in two dimensions the three-dimensional complexity of a gable roof on the downhill side. All right, so now we've got a couple of images that Tracy has put a lot of time into. And um, so basically we've got a gable roof on the downhill side. So the water that lands anywhere on the structure is going to move to the left and the right of the structure, to the sides, and then down the hill, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, either running to the back of the structure or um, running down the hill in such a way that we don't have any view. So um, we've attached the gable roof to the shed roof, and this is our most basic Wafati design. All right. Oh, look at those beautiful images. Don't you guys wish you owned this book now? <laughs> Water that reaches the house from the uphill side is diverted by the ditch that is below floor level. Any rain that falls on the roof will drain to the downhill side. Now we've got light coming into the building from both the uphill and the downhill side. And we won't we won't wake up to find our mattress floating in a flooded bedroom like we're in some sort of cartoon. All right. Um, please tell me that you saw that cartoon. You know, the mattress in the cartoon. I'm the one who wrote that into the text. <laughs> that was my line. Was it? I thought I wrote that. Because I nope. think about Bugs Bunny floating around on his yeah, little mattress. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty sure I added that into the. Okay, um, the next section is called A Freaky Cheap Home That Doesn't Look Freaky Cheap. There are a lot of manufacturers out there who proudly proclaim that their houses are much cheaper than the average. It turns out that with manufactured homes, you usually get what you pay for. The house looks cheaper than the average, not the kind of place I would like to live in. My goal with the design of the Wafati is to provide a more luxuriant space at half the cost of a conventional home. Oh, yeah. When I said earlier that Mike Ayler was trying to reduce materials cost with his design, I kind of forgot to mention Mike's original home only cost him $50 to build. Later, Mike added on to that home to make it a little bigger and a little nicer. The cost of the addition was $500. Now, I don't think in the book we mentioned that Mike also has the $15 house. No, we don't uh, mention that. Yeah, and I got a video of the $15 house, and so the total cost to build it was 15 bucks. And so, I mean, and a lot of people are kind of like, I don't, I'm never going to. What I'm asking you to do is wrap your head around it. And it's like, if this guy could build this for $15, what do you think you could do with 500 you could probably build a pretty nice house for 500 bucks. You could probably build a magnificent house. In fact, um, there's a lot of Ailer houses that have been built. The total materials cost for a four-bedroom home was like $8,000. And so I just kind of feel like this is very low cost. But, of course, now we're kind of back to where we were with Cobb, where it's like, okay, the, the materials cost is low, um, but what about the labor cost? And, of course, uh, these, these houses are being built very quickly because there's uh you know there's there's no foundation there's and then and then the the roof is this this design of the roof ends up going together pretty quick and um it's it's like so 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 much cheaper than it's cheaper and faster to build than conventional okay um and, and faster to build i think even if you're scavenging materials 
Right. Although that sometimes can end and it, on that topic, actually. Yeah, to be fair, Mike used a lot of scavenged materials. And if every person on the planet went this route, then there would be a limited amount of materials to scavenge. So the cost would be a little higher for things like new windows and plumbing parts. Still, even in that case, we're talking about the ability to build a house for only a few weeks' worth of wages. Yes, weeks, not years. To illustrate how this might be possible, let's do a ground-up comparison between a Wafati and a conventional home. The first part of building a conventional home is the foundation. The foundation usually rings in at around a third of the total cost of a home. A Wafati is a type of pole structure, so it requires no foundation. There's roughly a third of the price gone. Next, there's the exterior walls of the structure. Building a conventional home involves bringing in a lot of materials, framing, lumber, nails, insulation, vapor barrier, plywood, drywall, etc. These materials have a cost to them. In Wafati, the shell is made of trees cut from the land, a thin waterproof membrane, some dirt, and some wood duff. Materials cost maybe a couple hundred bucks for the membrane. Topping off the structure is the roof. Like the foundation, the roof is also roughly a third of the cost of a conventional home. Again, we're looking at lots of imported, read costly, materials. And if you wish to do a standard green roof, the cost of the roof increases by a factor of 10. All right, so now let me, I'm just going to pause for a second. I'm marking where I was. If you, if you want a green roof on a conventional house, it costs 10 times more than a conventional roof. And, and it has to do with like, um, uh, the drainage. You know, you got to be able to hold the soil up there while still providing drainage. Yeah. And, and it's like, it is, it is a sophisticated thing. I mean, it's cool. It's amazing. But, Suddenly, there's a lot more materials involved. There's a lot more work involved. Yeah. The overall house, and it ends up being very expensive to do a green roof. But Mike's design and the design of the Wafati are such that if you're willing to sacrifice skylights and the need for gutters, the cost of your roof will be less than a tenth that of a conventional roof. For materials, we're still looking at trees cut from the land, a thin waterproof membrane, some dirt, and some wood duff. Again, just the cost of the membrane. Of course, not everyone wants to build their own house. Fair enough. But then you're probably going to have to pay somebody to build it for you. My hope is that the comparison between a Wafati and a conventional home painted a picture that suggests not only reduced materials costs, but reduced labor costs too. For example, drilling a few post holes is going to require much less labor than pouring a concrete slab, or even worse, a damp, smelly basement. Most of the labor for a wafati is going to come from log prep, harvesting trees, removing the bark, and bringing them to the building site. This can be a long process, but I think that there are ways that we can speed this process up significantly. Once the logs are prepped and ready, there is labor involved in erecting the structure, and then it's mostly some time with an excavator for assembling the envelope. Uh, quick note, um, if you harvest your trees in the early spring, like right about now, the, the bark practically falls off. Right. Okay. Um, it sounds like we are now well on our way to reducing costs. My hope is that as we continue to experiment with building these structures, we can find ways to optimize the process such that the labor to build a Wafati is far less than a conventional home. And since the materials cost is extremely low, a Wafati would be a beautiful, freaky cheap place to live. And if that isn't enough, let's talk about how the structure may not need any heat, or air conditioning. So the next section is called using... Oh, do we have any um, 
I mean, I can see lots of stuff scrolling by in the. Yeah, the, one yeah. one of the comments said, "You said a third for the foundation, a third for the walls, and a third for the roof. What about all the other things in a house?" And I think it's kind of like, okay, it's not exactly a third of each. Certainly, there's going to be cost for plumbing. There's going to be cost for electrical things like that. Right. But just right. as a general general guideline, I'm talking about the shell. I'm talking. Yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. So. Um, uh, the, there's a, there's a cost for a kitchen sink, and so um, I'm not including that. Yeah. And so uh, there's going to be the cost for your breaker box and all your wires for electricity. I'm not including. That. Yeah. And so um, yeah, that's that's going to be a, a significant cost to add yeah. that. And then the uh, I'm I'm actually surprised we're about an hour and a half in until this question got asked. I thought we'd get asked in the first five minutes. Paul, oh, what about permits? Yeah, what about them? Uh, okay, so um, I, I don't know. I think we've kind of covered this in a few podcasts in the past, but um, I think that uh, I, like he's in California. He's in Southern California, um, and where he's building and uh, doing all of his gray water stuff, it's like completely against the law. Right, and and so um, at least it was. Mm-hmm. Until and so what he did is is he avoided regulators. He did his experiments. He did his work. He proved that he was right about gray water, and um, and then when the time came, then uh, he got in touch with legislators, and then the legislators asked him to write the new legislative code for Southern California for gray water systems. Right. So so the moral of the story is is that. Uh, in order to build a better world, we have to break the law. And um, there are some places where the law is going to be cool with that, and there are some places where the law isn't. And so I specifically, myself, bought property uh, where it is legal. I, I can build weird things if I want right. um, and, and do these experiments. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of places, and it's kind of like, you know, in in order to be able to, oh, oh, then, in fact, I'm not even sure if we get to the story in here. Uh, do you know if we do, where we tell the story about the the people that had the, um, uh, was it? I think it was a four bedroom Ehler structure. No, we don't. We don't cover that in the book. Okay, so um, I I know I've shared this story more than a hundred times, but. Um, Mike Ayler talks about a guy who built an Ayler structure, and he's out working in his garden one day. Uh, and this is somewhere in Europe. And the Department of Making You Sad approaches uh, the front gate and says, uh, we heard that you have a house on this property. It's two acres, not really big property. He says, we heard you have a house here, and uh, we have no record of you asking for a permit to build the house, and you ha- certainly haven't paid any taxes or anything like that. So um, the guy says, uh, well, you know, come on on the property. Um, if you can, I'm just doing some gardening today, you know, uh, but uh, if you can find a house, I, I guess I have to pay taxes on it. <laughs> so apparently they didn't find it. <laughs> Which it was a I pretty small of, property too, wasn't it? Yeah, but I kind of think, you know, surely there's going to be a trail that goes up to the front door. I mean, <laughs> The, the design is such that if you plant lots of shrubs and stuff, it would become pretty invisible. Um, even though you would still have tons of light coming in, you would be standing around it and there'd be shrubs in the way. You wouldn't see it there. But I can't help but think that there's going to be a trail that goes up to a door that goes inside. Yeah. I, so, but still, I, the story is wonderful if you just kind of look past that thing about the trail. But I do have a video uh, on YouTube that is of Mike Ayler's $50 house. And um, I think I, I got two different views. One is, is like I am, I think I'm about 25 feet away from the front door. And I video scanning everything. And you can't see it. And then um, uh, Jocelyn comes out the front door and waves and goes away, and then Mike comes out the front door and waves and goes away, and it's like the whole house just disappears. It's just gone. You can't see it. Hmm. And then I got a video of me 
walking along a trail that basically walks, you know, across the building. And, and I have to stop and point the camera at a window. And there's the window. Do you see it? Look carefully. There's the window. And you walk, you walk right by on this trail and you don't see the building. Right. So, um, I think it is possible to do and to, to make a, a building that, and, and to me, what I want to do is something like, I've built this magnificent garden and, um, it's, it's, so I've, it's as if I had a, a big flat patch and I built this huge magnificent garden and then I just lifted up a big slice that's like 20 feet wide and I slipped in a house and then laid the garden back on top of the house. <laughs> to me, this is an aesthetic. This is a, this is a type of art. Yeah. Um, and this is the art of nature and even more than that. This is the art of a gardener romancing nature. And it's like, this is integrated in the whole house. So this is, this is this beauty of, of a gardener's beauty, uh, is what I want for these wafatis. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, even if it was more expensive, I kind of feel like this beauty that you get out of it is the best. It's vastly superior, but okay, yeah, they 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 can be extremely invisible. I I'm surprised that there's not ten thousand wafatis built now by the prepper community. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's a form of defense. You know, they can't even find my house, uh, kind of a thing. Not to mention the fact that there's no smoke trace in the wintertime because you don't burn any you don't burn any wood. In order to heat it. All right. Uh, any other um, uh, comments from the uh, the chat thing there? No, I think let's uh, keep moving. All right. All right. Uh, using the heat from summer to heat your home during the winter. The shell of Ehler's structure has a waterproof membrane around it. In his book, he talks about using polyethylene, a clear or black plastic sheeting for the membrane. Later, he started using EPDM, pond layer, which is thicker and less prone to having holes poked in it, but also more expensive. We hope that someday we'll figure out a way of doing this with purely natural materials, like clay. This membrane keeps any moisture from coming through the soil and into the house. That said, if there's a heavy rain or melting snow, the dirt that is just on the other side of the membrane is often wet. Remember how straw doesn't have much insulative power, and yet a straw bale wall is considered to be far more insulative than a conventional wall. That's because it's so thick. The R value per inch of a typical straw bale wall is rated between 0.94 and 2.68. For comparison, the R value per inch of fiberglass bats is 3.1 to 4.3. But they are often much thinner. Looking at our green roof, the R value per inch for dirt is roughly 0.05 when wet, and 0.33 when dry. Six times more insulative when dry. After I stumbled upon Mike Ehler's stuff, I found a copy of John Haight's book called Passive Annual Heat Storage. In that book, John appears to extend Mike's ideas to include a cheap means to completely eliminate the need to heat the structure. On top of dry dirt being six times more insulative than wet dirt, dry dirt also has the ability to retain heat for a really long time. Hate's book goes into a lot of mathematical detail on this, and he concludes that if you have 20 feet of dry dirt, you can carry the heat of summer all through the cold winter thermal inertia. Well, I don't
don't want to have a house that is 20 feet deep. And hate doesn't suggest that. Instead, wrap this much dry dirt around more than half of the house. He has done this more than once. And the result is a home that requires no heat. Hate's initial experiments were with homes in Montana, a great place to test heating strategies. Incorporating Hate's research into the Wafati design, now you have a layer of structure, R-2.5 uh, R to R5, membrane on the structure, about 8 inches of dry dirt, R-2.64, about 4 inches, of wood duff, R-5, another layer of membrane, and then 20 inches of wet dirt. That works at about R1. This cross-section of the roof layers. And so Tracy's made a lovely drawing of, of these different layers that we're talking about. Yeah. Lastly, John Haight's book is called Passive Annual Heat Storage. But what the title leaves out is that this design also brings a good deal of cooling in the summer. I think the phrase annualized thermal inertia is more accurate. The strict definition of Wafati. The W, so here's the acronym. We're going to spell out the acronym. Uh, uh, w is for woodland. O is for Ehler inspired because Mike Ehler spells his name O-E-H-L-E-R. Uh, F is for freaky cheap. And then the ATI is the annualized thermal inertia. Uh, but even though it's an acronym, I prefer Wafati all over case, the joys of making stuff up because it's my word. Since I made up the word, I get to define what it means. If anyone's going to call their structure Wafati, I hereby require it to meet the following criteria. One, every drop of rain has a complete downhill soil path and never encounters a roof edge. Two, there are two layers of membrane, the lower layer, which hugs the structure, and the upper layer, which defines the thermal mass that surrounds the structure. Three, the uphill side has an open trench to move water around the structure. Four, the uphill side has a roof that extends at least five feet beyond the exterior wall. Five, there are at least eight inches of dirt between the two layers of membrane. There are at least 16 inches of dirt on the top layer of membrane. Six, the inner pole structure is made of logs. Seven, no treated wood is used in any of the structure. Further, if anyone's going to call their structure a Wofati house, I hereby require it to meet the following additional criteria. A, at least 35% of the uphill wall is glass or What's happening? I don't know. I'm back. Okay. I, I dropped him out. I saw it disappeared. Hey, are we still on? It looks, it says we're still going. Can the people in the chat type something to say that we're still going? I'm guessing it's still recording. It did this whole thing like somebody hit the reset button. <clears throat> That's not good. Um, Someone says, does three out of oh, five count? No, you have to do them all. Otherwise, it's not a Wafati. Oh, okay. Um, I want to yeah. see the people in the chat type stuff so I can see that, it, you know, that they can still hear. Yeah. yeah, they're back. Oh, we see you. You're on now. Okay, so everything's all right. All right. So all right. Maybe you dropped, not me. I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, a modification for... A year-round freezer. One of the potential additional applications of a Wafati design is a Wafati freezer. We've already talked about using the heat from summer to heat your home during the winter. This is basically the same idea except backwards. A Wafati freezer uses the cold from winter to keep things frozen throughout the summer. 
While Wafati House is suitable for hot or cold climates, a Wafati freezer will include a pluggable vent tube that runs through the core of the thermal mass that are, that are below 10 degrees Fahrenheit and let the heat escape to the outside air. On days above 10 degrees, the tubes are plugged to reduce the amount of heat transferring into the mass in order to keep the mass cold. It helps to have a big mass. The upper layer of membrane should cover at least five times as much square footage as the available square footage in the structure. With this in place, it should be possible to store food year-round with zero ongoing energy inputs. Oh, I think that's such a great idea. All right. Here in Montana, the when you get 20 feet down, the average soil temperature is 45 degrees. If you go to a spot that has a north-facing slope, so it gets less sun than a flat slope, a flat patch, or a south-facing slope, which would get more sun. A north-facing slope has less sun. It's even colder. Right. And so then if you were to go down... What? What did you say the temperature was? 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So okay. I forget that you're a Canadian. Yeah, I, I had to pull up <laughs> the Google here to turn that okay. into... Uh, yeah. So ours, I think ours here is about 42, 43. Okay. When you get down deep enough. So pretty close. Okay. So now, uh, it's 45 degrees on flat land. And if you've got north facing slope, it might be less than 40 degrees. So if you just built a root cellar on a north facing slope, chances are that, um, it's probably going to stick fairly close to let's say, 39 degrees. Um, now, if we shape the land around it to basically encourage a frost pocket, so any cold air that might come down the slope gets mm -hmm. concentrated into this spot, we might have an average temperature that's still about 3 or 4 degrees colder than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so now what are we? Let's say we're talking about 35 degrees. Well, freezing's at 32, so we're just a pinch above freezing. Yeah. So, so now uh, we do the whole Wafati thing in in such a way, and we eliminate all the windows because if this is going to be a year-round freezer, we don't need no. the surrounding mass has a big tube through it that has an uphill slope to it. So when you pull the plugs, then all of the heat that's trapped in there gets extracted. And I'm assuming you're going to pull the plugs on a cold day. Like, let's say it's zero outside. You pull yeah. the plugs. The heat goes out. The uh, zero degrees goes in. And um, and so basically you're going to – you could think of it as charge, charging the mass with this cold. Yeah. And um, And so we just need a little bit. Because we're only trying to go from like 35 down to 32, so we're we're not covering a big gap here. Um, yeah, and depend, depends what you're trying to get to. I know for like commercial kitchens, uh, at least up here, minus or it's about zero Fahrenheit is the temperature that the freeze, freezers are required to be. So it's minus 18 Celsius. Okay. Um, I don't know all of the reasons for why that is, but. Uh, I know here it gets bloody cold enough. I'm sure you could charge a mass to minus 18 if you really wanted to. So, all right. The, the key is is that this is nothing more than an idea. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, we have there have been so many times that we've been set. We've been trying to start the build, and then shit happens, and we got to go deal with the shit. So, um, but at the same time, it's like, uh, uh, I don't think we're going to build one this year. We've got far too many other projects, you know, we're in the middle of, but I don't know. I love the idea of this idea. It needs yeah. to be a double chambered thing. The first chamber would be 
uh, mm-hmm. slightly warmer, and the the inner the the further back chamber would be colder. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I would I would kind of think that the you would think oh that first chamber could be a refrigerator, and it's like, yeah. Um, and then the second chamber would be the freezer. But I, I love the idea of doing this experiment. Um, I all of these other things, but my my voice is giving out. I don't yeah. think I can. We might have to do this in two parts. Um, yeah, I think we might have to. <clears throat> but maybe I, about, maybe I should have read the stuff earlier. Uh, but that's it. That's the end of the chapter. We made it through the whole chapter. Um, uh, has anybody got any, uh, when you were reading all the stuff, were there any good comments or questions or anything? Yeah, let's, let's do a few questions. I remember somebody was asking, and I know you and I have talked about this a few times, and we, we did address it somewhat in this chapter. It was a question of like, okay, where can you build a wafari and where can't you build a wafari? And so someone was like, can you build one in a swamp? And I was kind of like, I imagine your logs are probably going to rot. That's yeah, my theory. Um, I think if you're going to build in a swamp, first of all, that swamp is going to be probably really flat, and yes. so there you go, no wafati there. Um, uh, but yeah, this is, I in fact um, with Ehlers structure, um, uh, his uh, he says that the Ehlers structure uh, is fireproof. So like if there's a wildfire right. in the area, mm-hmm. no problem. Uh, earthquake proof. Um, so like uh, there's a long list of natural disasters that it's totally, um, you know, an awesome defense against. The only thing, it's Achilles heel, is flooding. It does not do well with flooding. Um, and so I wouldn't, and while Ehlers got designs for building on flat land, I don't think I would want to build a Wafati on a flat land. I, in fact, we, uh, out where Allerton Abbey is, it's a pretty gentle slope. Yeah. And, and one of the lessons learned there was that that was too gentle of a slope. In order to complete the structure, we're having to, um, dig a pond over there and take the guts of the pond to put it on the roof of the Wolfati. Um, and it's like, that's not an efficient thing. And so, um, needs more slope than that. Uh, to be efficient, yeah. Otherwise, you're starting to put a lot of energy into assembling it and getting the materials. Now, for Mike, he's he's like totally cool with it being underground, and I'm not. Right. And um, and so with Mike's designs for flat, then it's very underground. Yeah. But for me, it's like if you're going to build it uh, not underground, so the the floor has to be higher than the surrounding ground. Then it's kind of like, all right, you build it there. Now you're going to put on your thicker than roof. Where are you getting that thicker than roof material from? Yeah, if you're in a flat spot, the only way you can get it is digging a huge pond. Right. Which, and so, if you're going to dig a huge pond anyways, then it's maybe not horrible. But it is still a lot of extra work to drive yeah. back and forth. Moving the material there. Yeah. It's going to take a ton of time. It's, yeah, that's, that's um, the thing that's just killing us. Somebody asks uh, what your flatland recommendation is. Uh, and, and keeping in mind here, I live in flatland. Paul's, Paul's <laughs> recommendation is move. Yeah. So. so <laughs> uh, sorry, that's not more helpful. Uh, somebody else says, uh, the soil side, does it face north or south? I think the the point, the, the way I understand it at least, is this structure is not set up to be passive solar. You can do passive solar with yeah. it, but the design itself is set up to theoretically work regardless of which direction you point it in, so long as the direction you point it in is up and downhill. Yeah, I think that the design is definitely aligned with the hill yeah. and not with passive solar. Now, um, we, so with Allerton Abbey, um, I was very hands off during the build. Um, and I, I would go up like once a week to check on things and, um, uh, because I was doing so many other things at the same time, but 
I went up one day and they were mapping out where it's all going to go. And, and I saw it and I said, well, wait, this isn't aligned with the slope that's here. And then the response was, no, we, well, we wanted to get the passive solar gain. And so we're aligning the glass towards, you know, the sun. Mm. And, and I said, actually, for Allerton Abbey, it's important to me, and that's why I picked this spot, is that the slope goes east-west. And so we're going to be, it'll be the worst possible passive right. solar. I want, I want to eliminate passive solar from this build. Because I want to prove how well the annualized thermal inertia works without being influenced by passive. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is, is we're going to get it all going, and people are going to be like, "Oh, they say that it's the annualized thermal inertia, but look, it's all passive solar. That's all it is." Yeah. And so, you know, it's like I need at least one of these where we can uh, uh, be able to, to measure this, to be able to see how well the annualized thermal inertia works with this design without being influenced by passive solar. Now, all that said, passive solar has uh, one really big problem, clouds and <laughs> winter. And so it's possible that uh, you can have this magnificent passive solar home, and then the sun comes out, and everybody inside is cooking. It's like a big solar oven. Yeah. And it's like and, – and it's possible to even have the temperature exceed – 130 degrees. So, you know, if you've got an animal inside your, you got your cat inside your house, you might come home and find the cat dead um, because it just got too hot. And then at, at night, then it gets uh, way too cold. You know, all that glass lets all that right. heat back out. So, um, however, I kind of feel like if you had uh, plenty of hillside, you might find a north-facing slope and then build on the north-facing slope. So that way most of your glass is facing south. And mm-hmm. then all those problems disappear because then the heat comes in and then uh, heats your mass yeah. inside. And then, and then it evens the temperature out dramatically it gets far more even and so i think that wafati plus passive solar is going to be a match made in heaven but i think i think that the annualized thermal inertia of the wafati is going to be the real champion and then the the the, uh the passive solar added on top of that is a nicety i think i think that's where we're going to go go ahead we'll have to see okay all right. Uh, one more question from chat. Okay. Uh, what about mudslides? How far up the hill? Now, of course, we don't really have hills here. And we certainly don't have mudslides here. Oh, I think you just froze up again. Oh, come on, really? <sighs> My understanding is that it might be your connection. Uh, yeah, if you've got a steep enough slope, that could be an issue. But then, really, isn't it kind of going to have something to do with, um, uh, uh, like, what you've got growing up there? I mean, yeah, I keep thinking that that's not actually about the house design. That's about how are you taking care of the rest of your land, and you yeah. know, how are the people above you taking care of their land? And then, if you've got uh, any kind of style of house. I mean, aren't they all going to be equally susceptible to mudslide issues? I would imagine. Well, I I would postulate, without doing math, that the Wafad might fare better than some of the other ones. But it's still going to be a really sad day. So, yeah. you know, set up your land in a way that doesn't cause mudslides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write that down so you don't forget. Okay. Um, oh, uh, Jocelyn says that she can hear you, Sean, but not me, Paul. Okay, so I thought maybe it was I think it's connection. about time to wrap this thing up. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, did we document here? There it is. And um, so we're going to talk about the updates and the lessons learned. Um, uh Oh, there's. I wanted to put a, put out a mention about the biological reverse Kickstarter. 
uh, especially the, the boot-focused stuff. And so, in fact, maybe there could be a biological reverse Kickstarter to be like for a freezer with body. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, and then uh, for some of the biological reverse Kickstarter, I think somebody's throwing in a knitted hat, like they're going to hand knit a hat. If you so, like right now, I know that um, uh, Robbie is posting like five or six pictures a day, every day, and then if he does a picture a day every day for 90 days, which I think he's on like day 65 or something like that, then uh, the biological reverse Kickstarter pays him. I think it's like 500 bucks. Maybe it's more than that. It's but, not bad. Yeah, yeah. And and so I kind of think that uh, if, if more people could go and put more goodies behind the biological reverse Kickstarter, then um, that would really encourage pictures and video and uh, certain projects to be done and things like that. Um, and more than just like, because everybody just wants me to do all the things. And it's kind of like, no, 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 we're trying to build community here. And then have a whole bunch of people building all the things. And, and so I think that's really the path to go. And so how do we find ways to, to get that, uh, off the ground? Uh, oh, we have money from one pod person. So somebody listens to the podcast to pay somebody to professionally build a berm shed. But we reached out to five different timber framers and they are all too busy right now. So, and I got to add a caveat to that in that, uh, uh, yesterday evening I got a phone call, uh, from somebody who says he knows somebody who might be available and they're trying to work that out and we'll see. But, um, that sounds like a quite the stretch if that's going to happen. But if anybody knows of uh, somebody that has uh, actual professional paid experience for timber framing, um, even roundwood timber framing would be even better. Then it's kind of like, and we've done that. We've taught this stuff here before. Um, but uh, what we want to do is, is to get, you know, like, let's move these projects forward. And so we'll do what we normally do parallel to this other person building, we get another example. And so if anybody knows of somebody, you know, please put them in touch with us. Yeah. I'm ready to wrap my voice. I'm just, (sighs) all right. Thank you so much to everybody who came in and put in stuff in the chat. Oh man. That was just exciting to see all of the comments whizzing by. Um, Yeah, that's fun. That, that is so cool. Um, uh, we'll, we'll do this again. Uh, we send our Patreon peeps, uh, the, the advance notice on when we're going to do this and we'll, uh, we'll finish this up. Um, yeah. please support our Kickstarter. Uh, if you already have, consider bumping it up a little bit, maybe. Um, uh, and, uh, oh, it's in the Kickstarter. It's so ex- I'm so relieved that we're funded and, uh, now I'm excited to see how far it will go. This is uh, such a fun time. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Anything else to add, Sean? No. Thanks, everyone. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about natural building, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.